If you haven't already done so, I invite you to turn in the Word of God to the book of Romans, to Romans chapter 6, where our main text is going to come from this morning. We continue to work through a summary of our Christian faith that's organized and summarized in a document that we call the Heidelberg Catechism. For centuries, really millennia, Christians have used these summaries, these faithful handbooks, not as a way to stand over the Bible, but as a way to explain and summarize what we believe the Bible teaches. Their authority is insofar as they truthfully speak to the word. And this church confesses the catechism to be among those faithful summaries. Well, last week we looked at what it has to say concerning the death of Christ and why it was necessary for us. But this morning we turn our attention to the resurrection of Christ, no less necessary, no less beneficial. Now the context of the passage in Romans has to do with uh, people, some of whom were questioning whether or not the things that we believe about the gospel lead to licentiousness. Children, that just means people living like they can do whatever they want, they can do wrong, they can sin all they want. And the accusation being made about the Christian faith at that point was, well, if you believe that God saves us by grace alone, through faith alone, not at all based on any of the good you did before or after you were saved, if that's not the ground of why God accepts you, then people are just going to live however they want. And here the apostle turns around and he says, no, the total opposite. And he connects it to the resurrection. If Christ is raised, then that will produce an effect, a kind of beginning of resurrection in our own lives, a changed way of living. Because life is not just physical, it's also spiritual. And Christ who is raised, body and soul, sends forth his spirit to transform us. We have the beginning of the resurrection even now. That's what he's talking about in this section. Now, here together with me, the main text, beginning at verse 5. For if we have been united with him, that is, with Christ, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, If we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let's ask the Lord's special blessing upon the word. Heavenly Father, you have given us the Holy Scriptures in order that we might feed upon them in faith. We ask that you would grant us as necessary true repentance, that we be humbled for any dependence upon ourselves or any clinging to the old life of sin and death. We pray that your Holy Spirit be at work in us for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. God's people pray. Amen. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is without a doubt 
one of, if not the most monumental claims made by Christianity. And understandably, it has always had its opponents, and it always will until they see Christ raised, have its opponents. It helps, though, to know that the idea of resurrection was something which was opposed even before Christ was raised. Christianity didn't find a global world and trick it into faith. It found a world that was resistant to the kinds of claims Christianity in particular was making. And by God's help, it found a footing and has grown. When you think about the world before Christ was incarnated, take just, for instance, in the area where he was born, Judea, you have a group of people called the Sadducees. You've probably heard of them, but if you haven't, the Sadducees were at that time really the religious leaders who were in power. They were most connected to the government and the government of Rome. They were very influential. The Sadducees did not believe in a literal resurrection of the body. Passages in the Old Testament that describe the resurrection of the body, like Daniel chapter 12, they interpreted in a metaphorical or spiritual way. Then you have outside of Judea, the whole world of the Greeks and the Romans. And the Greeks and the Romans, as a group, also did not look with belief upon the idea of resurrection. In fact, they looked at it with mild disgust. They were more inclined to think of this body as a prison, something you want to escape. Sometimes we feel that way. That wouldn't it be better to just be a spirit and be rid of all of the filth, the aches, the pains? And so the Greeks thought of the body as something low to be escaped from. The idea of resurrection seemed beneath anything spiritual. This is the kind of world into which the Lord sends the apostles proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Not surprisingly, some of those who heard the message of the gospel, some of those in the city of Corinth or in the city of Rome, were attracted to aspects of the Christian message. But they were much more reluctant, even opposed to the idea of Jesus' resurrection. They wanted to affirm ideas about Jesus, but not that one. And the same is true today. There are many people who profess to be Christians, but if you ask them, do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead? They'll say, well, not literally. Not literally, but I still regard myself as a Christian. What the Lord lays before us this morning, however, is that this doctrine of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the essential, one of the necessary articles of Christian faith. Without it, you don't have Christianity. And on top of that, it is one of the most beneficial doctrines, not just one time, but every day is a resurrection day for the believer. Every day we have to be brought back to that. Our thoughts begin in the morning when we wake up. This is a resurrection day. We go to sleep with, I go to sleep in the comfort of the resurrection. If I don't wake up tomorrow, I have the hope of a resurrection. Whatever tomorrow brings, the resurrection stands over it. The tomb is open. Christ is raised. So this is the idea that we consider this morning, which our Heidelberg Catechism focuses on in Lord's Day 17, both the necessity and also the benefits of the resurrection. And I intend to work through these ideas with you under two main headings. First, to look at why it's necessary, and then to look at the three benefits that our catechism names. Though there are many more, and it would be an excellent exercise on the Lord's Day to think through those. Now, I'll mention both of those headings as we come to them again, but at this moment, I invite you to think about one thing. 
I wonder if you've heard of, I know most of us have, but maybe you haven't heard of. There was a time when I didn't know about what are called the three ancient ecumenical creeds. The ancient ecumenical creeds, ecumenical just means, in this context, they were believed by and confessed by all the Christians in all the places in the ancient world. If you didn't confess them, you were not acknowledged as a Christian. You have the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed. And all three of these are in that little thin book in our pew, the Forms and Prayers book. Have you noted that every single one of them includes Jesus' bodily resurrection as essential to the faith? Early Christianity could never have conceived of a Christianity without Jesus' historical bodily resurrection. And if you were to examine the major confessions of the Protestant Reformation, you'd find the same thing. This is an essential article of the Christian faith. You might have an interest in Christ, but you do not have Christianity without this. And so for our first main idea, this is what I'd like to lay before you, why this is a necessary article. Many reasons could be given here. For instance, just the fact that if Christ was not raised bodily, if he remained permanently without a body, what does this mean about him as the true son of man? When God created human beings, he created them an integrated being, body and soul. These are not two things where you just take one and get rid of it and you're fine. But they're intended to be together. They can be separated. They're made to be together. And God looked at them together and he said, this is good. And if Christ was united by the spirit to a human body and soul and then was left without the body, then he is permanently without a true human nature. But what I want to focus on this morning, and when you think about the necessity of the resurrection of Christ, is something else. It's what it would say about the Bible as a reliable witness of the truth if Jesus is not raised bodily. Children, I'm going to say that again. You need to understand, if you do not believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, what does that say about the Bible itself as a witness of the truth? Now, of course, you know that there are a number of ways that you can express the truth. Many authors express the truth by way of fiction. They form stories full of imagination that can communicate truth, say, about morality, life lessons. Many of us as children heard some of Aesop's fables, the story of the tortoise and the hare. And it communicates a certain truth. For me, I grew up with the little blue engine. And it taught me a truth. If you stop trying, you will certainly fail. If you keep trying, maybe you'll get up the hill. And that's a truth. But that doesn't require me to believe there was ever a living, animated blue engine. Fiction doesn't require certain things of us as a genre. History does. History, by its very nature as a literary genre, purports itself to be an accurate account of actual events. The New Testament writers unabashedly assert the resurrection of Jesus Christ as a historical fact to be reckoned with. Whatever you do with what the Bible says, you have to reckon with the historical claims about Jesus. In fact, I invite you to turn with me and look at the beginning of Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 1. What I hope in seeing this is that on some level it helps inoculate us from any acceptance 
of Jesus' resurrection is simply an inspirational metaphor for new beginnings. No, that's not what Luke said it is. Hear what it says in Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, my excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Luke is here asserting that many people in the intervening 30 or 40 years following Christ's death had been writing down the things he said and taught and did. And then Luke goes, and remember this was a companion of Paul, Luke goes and interviews many of them and puts together this one account. Luke, of all these writings, is not alone. It's not as if only a few things were written. It's one of the things which the Holy Spirit saw fit to preserve. But then look at what he says in Acts chapter 1. Luke also is the author of the book of Acts. It's a kind of part two. Acts chapter 1, verse 1, he says, I'll give you a moment to turn there. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Luke is making historical claims that Jesus was raised. Paul adds to this that to those in Corinth who are objecting to this idea, can, you, can we really believe this happened? Paul says, look, Jerusalem is not that far away. Paul had traveled and come many times. He says there's over 500 people living right now who saw him. Add to this the details that God saw fit to preserve in the gospel accounts concerning there being a Roman guard at the tomb, a seal upon it. The Lord would call us to believe in any case, and yet he saw fit to present it to us as truth. Let me bring before you when and where Jesus is living. This is not some darkened portion of the world with no one who writes. This is not like King Arthur, of whom nothing was written at the time of his supposed existence. Jesus lives after the time of Julius Caesar, Mark Antony, Cleopatra, people of whom we have relatively good certainty they lived and what their major actions were. During the time of major historians still taken seriously, Josephus, Tacitus, Suetonius. When the apostles write, they are presenting it in the genre of truth. And therefore, if you want to say that Jesus was not raised from the dead, then you have a major issue with the Bible. And not only then are the apostles found liars, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, but Fools! These people are willing to suffer and to die. They did not, by any account in the ancient world, grow rich off of their teaching. In the second and third centuries, many opponents of Christianity raised many accusations about Christians. They never brought an accusation that the Christians got rich off the faith. They suffered and they died for this claim that they saw the resurrected Christ. 
And so the first thing that I set before you here is that this is an essential and necessary article of Christian faith. If you ditch this, you ditch your entire doctrine of the scripture. You ditch more than that, though. You ditch the benefits, the daily benefits that are built into the resurrection. I used to live on Catalina Island, and I would go into any one of these tourist shops. They all carried basically the same stuff. And in every one of them, you could find somewhere in the store a plastic bucket that was heaped full of cheap shell jewelry, shell necklaces. They were real cheap, a dollar, two dollars. You can get this shell necklace. It's just on a piece of string. And I think they're very popular children. Parents would send their kids in with a couple bucks, say, find something, they'd find this cheap item, it's pretty. Now, of course, inside of that shell necklace, there is no living organism. That has been taken out. And if there was a pearl in there, that too was taken out. They're not selling you the pearl for $2. People who have a kind of Christianity, but who do not believe in the bodily resurrection of Christ, have forfeited the pearl of the gospel. And more than that, they have divorced themselves from the living one by whom it was produced. You might have something pretty that you hold on to for tradition's sake, but you have lost where the life is. The resurrection is the life of the church. It's connected, of course, to Christ's death. But if he had not been raised, what would the message be? It would be entirely different. And so, Christians, we have to come back every day to the resurrection as the core, the cornerstone of the joy and the benefits that we have in the Lord. Now, this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14. It's very brief. I don't ask you to turn there. But he says, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. It's like taking a great big tree of, full of fruit and just stripping it of all the leaves and all the fruit. That is Christianity without the resurrection. And our catechism draws our attention to three, three of these benefits. And this is what I desire to spend the remaining time with you considering. Three of the benefits that come to you on a regular basis as you dwell on the resurrection. And I invite you to turn back if you've left that point, Romans chapter 6. We'll look at several of the verses here. The first of the benefits that our catechism names is that the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ provides the deepest assurance and comfort to us concerning our justification. Justification is God's declaration that he accepts us as righteous in his sight. In that sense, it's a legal thing. It's a verdict. You go, well, how can I I be justified if I haven't even lived out my whole life yet? How can the sentence be given if I haven't finished? And it has to do with the fact that we are united with Christ by faith and covenant, and God chooses. This is the message at the center of the gospel. God has chosen to count you one with Christ. And the verdict he pronounces on Christ is your verdict. Well, what is the verdict on Christ? We saw last week, death, as humans experience it, is a consequence of sin and the curse. If Christ remained dead, it would appear that he remained under the curse. But the death that he died was not for his own sin. It was for ours. And therefore, if he is raised, that is proof the penalty has been satisfied. And so when you think, where is Christ? He's in glory. 
He was raised. Then that is the assurance he was sufficient. Turn away from your doubts concerning the degree of sin you have, what sins might be in the future. You have to look at him raised and say, it is sufficient. This is the point Peter drove home in his very first sermon in Acts chapter 2. He says in verse 24, God raised Jesus up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Not just not possible because he's truly God and therefore can overcome death, but as a right, as a right, Jesus was not guilty. Because of God's promises to human beings, the wages of sin is death, while the wage of obedience is life. Christ earns it. Look with me at Romans chapter 6 at verse 5. It says, we have been united with him in a death like his. When it says in a death like his, you and I, of course, have not been physically crucified. It's talking about the fact that his death was a judicial death. It was a suffering of a penalty, and we have been united with him in that kind of death. And if that's the case, then as it says in Romans 4.25, he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The Reformation that we celebrate on this day is not the invention of the doctrine of justification. It's a recovery, a clarification of what the word teaches For centuries and centuries, that light grew darker. More and more of those who professed to be Christians came to think that their own righteousness played a part or the whole of their acceptance before God. Martin Luther clearly stated, he was a man with many issues, by the way. The more you learn about Luther, you learn this is a colorful man, times a very sinful man. And his claim was never that he was not. His claim was that he had a righteous savior, He had tried for years to overcome his sins by flogging himself, all kinds of penance. But then hear what he says. This is a quote from his commentary on Galatians 3.13. Because Jesus bears the sins of the world, his innocence is pressed down with the sins and the guilt of the entire world. Whatever sins I, you, or all of us have committed or may commit in the future... They are as much Christ's own as if he himself had committed them. In short, our sins must be Christ's own, or we shall perish eternally. The joy that we have in resurrection is the certainty that those sins are buried in the tomb. They do not come out. Come back to this every day. But the tomb was also open, and Christ walked out. And for that reason, this is one of the great comforts to us, one of the great sources of hope concerning our sanctification, begun in this life imperfectly, but truly. When Christ came out, he came out to live a righteous life. And when he sends forth his spirit into his people throughout the world, it's a spirit of righteousness. The Bible tells us that he began that good work in us, and he shall finish it to the end. That he begot in us a living hope. And it's out of that new principle of spiritual life that infused, and it's not terrible to use that word in this context, not of justification, but of sanctification, the Holy Spirit working into you by his power, a beginning of the life of the age to come, that we can live. There is a mystery to this. Reformed writers have sometimes described this as the gospel mystery of sanctification. Mystery just means we can't fully explain it, but we believe it. 
Scripture speaks of the Holy Spirit working life in you. And what life is that? Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that while the old covenant believers had the same essential hope as us in Christ to come, yet we have even greater assurance and comfort. When you think of the resurrection of Christ, the power that took dead life and not only brought it to life, but transformed it into a glorious life, one that can never perish, is the power working in you. Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says at verse 15 and following, I pray that the Holy Spirit would enlighten you with wisdom and understanding to know that the power by which Christ was raised from the dead now works in you. Paul says it here in verse 6 this way. Look with me. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. You are not under sin's dominion. Christ was raised body and soul. So if you feel like your body is to blame, though at the core it is our hearts, Christ was raised body and soul. He works in every part of the Christian. There is no temptation before us except that which is common to man and where the Lord provides a way of escape. And this for us is a great comfort. The third and final benefit that we look at this morning Concerning Jesus' bodily resurrection is mentioned in verse 8. Look with me there. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We will also live with him. Now, Paul here is speaking of sanctification, but not only sanctification. You move on through Romans, and then you look at what he says in 1 Corinthians 15, and what the other apostles speak of, and what Daniel chapter 12 speaks of, There is a future resurrection. What would it mean if Jesus is raised bodily, but the rest of us don't have that hope? I cannot communicate to you an epiphany. That's one of the problems with epiphanies. You can't give to somebody an epiphany, but I pray, we as a church should pray, for everyone to be struck by God with this fact. I can't say it in complicated words. The fact of Jesus' historical resurrection is as historical as any other event. It's not something we pretend is historical. It's a historical event. A human has been raised, and raised in a form higher than what we currently know of human beings. We have these philosophers and these technological people of the world who are striving after what they call transhumanism, the idea that you can merge enough technology with the human body and you'll get superhumans, you transcend. God has them beat. There's something that will transcend humanity as we know it and yet still be human, the even greater form, and it's whatever Christ is. Romans 8.11 says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies, not just your souls, through his spirit who dwells in you. Will it be a life just like this life? No. It will be tangible, physical, but different. Philippians 3.20 says, The Lord Jesus Christ will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. What will that difference consist in? I don't entirely know. But I do know it means we can never fall into sin again. And what a relief 
What a relief to every genuine believer for whom the greatest weight and burden in this life is your ongoing struggle with sin. Christ did not simply peek his head out of the tomb and leave his body in there. The whole Jesus came out, and he's not going to leave his body the church in there. You're coming out. And the life before us is going to be bodily and spiritual, holy together, which signifies to us glories of enjoyment, bliss, pleasure, reunion are ours in Christ. We've been begotten again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. So brothers and sisters, I I lay before you again what I said at the outset. Objections are going to be made to this belief, and if you seek to share the gospel with people, this will be one of them. People are going to say, how can you believe that Jesus literally rose from the dead? And you have to be prepared to give them an account for that. You could call them simply to believe it, and there's some sense in which that's fair. The Bible as a whole is so coherently reliable that even on this point, if I didn't know all the historical proofs, I would still believe the resurrection of Christ. Blessed are you who believe, though you have not seen. But on the other hand, God has seen fit to surround the resurrection with so many historical proofs that we should be prepared to explain these to people. There's a professor at Colorado State University who makes this point. He's a professor of philosophy, by the way. He's not necessarily a defender of Christianity. But consider these words that he says, because this idea will come into play as you interact with people in the world. He says, science does not handle historical explanations very competently. Science does not handle historical explanations very competently, especially where there are emergent novelties. Science is all about reproducible tests, but there's no test to demonstrate tomorrow happened. There are some truths which are known through different means and forms of reasoning that God has placed in the world, history being one of them. And there's no test for unique events in the past that will satisfy the scientific method. God has not bowed to the wisdom of the world. His whole character, though, in the scripture is to deal with us historically and truthfully. And so we call people to consider those grounds presented there as reliable. We call them to consider the scriptures as a whole, to lay before them the whole coherence of the Bible. And then we call them, we bear witness to the work of the Holy Spirit in us. Resurrection has begun. That is a major proof God does use when we can say, look around us, look at the transformation, look at the life. And God works in and through that. Finally, I want to exhort you, even as I've said, Christ has been raised. And the objection that was being raised against Paul at that time was, what you believe is going to lead people to live however they want. Not if Christ was raised, because he lives to work by his spirit through you. Let's close with these words from verse 11. You also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God As those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. May God apply that to us. Let's ask it even now in prayer.
We bless you, our God, our Heavenly Father. We thank you that according to your mercy, you caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We thank you that you've given us an inheritance which is imperishable, which cannot be defiled, which can never fade. We thank you that you keep it for us in heaven where Christ is seated. We thank you that even now you are guarding us by your power through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We ask that you would help us, Lord, to live resurrection lives, to communicate these things to a dying world, even perhaps on this day when many make a grotesque celebration of death as a way to find catharsis, as a way to settle their own fears, or to pretend as though there is no life to come. We pray that you would help us to be a people proclaiming the hope given to us in Christ's resurrection. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.